Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Beyond the Crucible. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of Beyond the Crucible. I'm popping in before Warwick for just a few seconds to tell you that this week and next, as our team takes time to celebrate the holidays with our families, we're running encore episodes of the best shows of 2023. This week, we're shining the spotlight again on the tragic, inspirational story of ESPN college football sideline reporter Lauren Sisson. What she endured was unfathomable. In bouncing back, she proved herself unstoppable. Well, Lauren, thanks so much for being here. Uh, It's an honor to have you. Before we get into Uh, a lot of what you do. And I love uh, the book that you have coming out, How I Found My Sideline Shimmy. Uh, Listeners, you'll have to listen to kind of understand more about that. You might already know, but uh, we've all discussed that more. But um, just in the work you do and the speaking, I love uh, what you talk about, about fall in love with your story. And, you know, you have a choice in terms of how we deal with crucible. So, you really have an important mission uh, that you have for people and it's on your heart. But I'd love just to hear a little bit about how you grew up. I um, uh, understand you live, you grew up in Roanoke, Virginia, which is uh, those of us in the Washington, D.C. area, somewhat familiar with sort of the end of the Shenandoah Valley and far south western corner of uh, Virginia, I guess. But tell us about what life was uh, like for you growing up in Roanoke and uh, dreams and, you know, any maybe clues to what you were to do afterwards. So, yeah, just tell us a bit about your background. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity to join you all. I love the podcast and just love uh, your mission and vision as well for helping others to overcome some of those obstacles that obviously stand in the way of our lives. And we're all faced with them in one way, shape, or form. And I'm just thankful for this opportunity to be a voice uh, in this space. And yeah, you talk about Virginia, which I happen to be in Virginia right now. Um, I live in Birmingham, Alabama, full-time. But I was very fortunate to be visiting family uh, as I've got life things happening, including a baby on the way uh, later this June. And so um, the opportunity to be here flooded by the beautiful mountains of Southwest Virginia is always uh, amazing for me and just love to come back home because this is a place that is close to my heart that I will always call home no matter where the TV world takes me, which has taken me all over the place in the last several years, um, more than a decade of just traveling, bebopping around, dancing around um, the country. But nevertheless, uh, you know, growing up in Roanoke, Virginia, um, you know, I was, I was very fortunate to to live in a family. It was uh, my, my mom and my dad, uh, Leslie and Butch. Uh, His real name was George, but for some reason he hated the name George. So he went by Butch. I'm not really sure why I could never figure it out. His dad was also named George and his dad hated the name George and he went by Preston, the middle name. So nevertheless, um, you know, we all, we all come up with something. Uh, But yeah, my mom and dad, Leslie and Butch Sisler, and then my brother, Alan, who is two and a half years older than me. And we grew up in Roanoke, Virginia, as as mentioned. And, um, you know, we were just that crazy, busy family, always on the go, always doing different things throughout life. Sports was at the center of all that. Sports was definitely uh, kind of the, 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 the flagstone in the family where, you know, we wake up in the morning and, you know, Saturdays it was college football. Sundays we had Washington on the TV. <laughs> so there you go. Um, that was always the, the big thing. It was always the big robbery between Washington and Dallas. So 
you know, certainly um, enjoyed watching the NFL as well. And then NASCAR was really big in our family. So mm. we used to go to the the, the racetrack a lot, uh, whether it be Martinsville, which was, you know, is the closest track to our home in Roanoke. Sometimes we'd go to Charlotte. But even cooler is that my brother was actually on a pit crew uh, at the NRV Speedway, the New River Valley Speedway here. And so we spent a lot of Saturdays going out there, setting up our lawn chairs on these cement slabs, watching my brother down there in the pits do his thing and, you know, getting to watch the the stock cars race there at the quarter mile track. So sports was definitely embedded in our family at a very young age. You know, for me, it was it was kind of that, you know, good American family, you know, living the dream. I feel like my parents were very supportive of my brother and I through our athletics. And uh, he was a three sport athlete. My brother was uh, football, baseball and basketball and, you know, kind of played that those sports when he was younger. And then me over here, the gymnast, gymnastics was a sport that caught on very early at an early age for me. And that really just became my sport and something I thrived in, I grew up in and really just became dedicated to it over the years. And so that really just became my main focus throughout, uh, you know, elementary school, junior high and high school on into college. So obviously, uh, we'll get to your crucible um, in college, but it sounds like as listeners are hearing your story, it almost sounds like there's no such thing as a perfect upbringing, you know, a 10 out of 10, but I don't know if it was a 9.9 or felt like it was, did it feel like it was pretty good? I mean, as you look back, I don't know if there are any clues to some of the storm clouds that would have come, but it sounds somewhat idyllic, you know, as, as we're listening to you. Very much so. And I think that's probably the hardest part as we dive into that part of the story is that, you know, you're young. When we're young, let's be real, we're naive. And parents are really good at sweeping stuff under the rug, making things seem great and perfect and everything's fine and well. And I will say there were a lot of those moments. There were a lot of those years. You know, my parents, I I would say, were just super supportive of my brother and I. And, you know, my mom worked part-time most of her life so that she could take care of my brother and I, get us to our athletic uh, events, um, was very involved. And so she really sacrificed a lot because I think she, you know, really took being a mother um, to heart, you know, she wanted to be a wife and a mother and, you know, she made those sacrifices, uh, you know, and, and, and maybe she wasn't making the large paychecks, but it was enough to be able to help us and not have to put us in childcare situation, um, throughout our, you know, adolescence and into, you know, teenage years. So with that being said, you know, I think that everything on the outside seemingly was perfect. It seemed like life was unfolding pretty well. You're a freshman at Rutgers doing gymnastics. It was probably a new adventure, you know, different place than where you grew up. And life seemed pretty good. And I think you came home one time. And so just well, actually before you came, I just talk about that freshman year and life changed forever during that freshman year, which going into that freshman year, you felt like continuation of what was a great life you know, gymnastics and college, great college. So just talk about how that life pivoted for you then. 
Yeah. You know, so going to Rutgers, obviously eight hours from home, it wasn't super close, but enough for the my parents to jump in the car and come visit and for me to get home, jump on a train or a plane, you know, going to Rutgers. Yes. Let's be real. Bit of a culture shock going from Southwest Virginia to New Jersey. <laughs> and, you know, I have to I have to remind people is, you know, as soon as I step foot on campus and open my mouth, people are like, you're not from around here, are you? And I'm like, no, oh, what, what gave that away? And I think my accent, um, has probably gotten a little better being in the broadcasting world because I've had to really learn to enunciate things a little better and, uh, you know, not maybe have as much of a draw. But I do think the Southern will never be taken out of me. That's for sure. And, uh, you know, especially now being in Alabama, some people argue that Virginia is not really the South, but I consider Virginia very much the South, especially this part of the state. But nevertheless, you know, it was a bit of a culture shock, but it was so exciting. As you mentioned, the world is right there in front of me. It's an extension of high school. Yes, there were challenges. Yes, there were major adjustments like any student experiences going from high school to college and all of the, uh, you know, classwork and dedication, and of course, in the training in the gym and, you know, gymnastics becomes a full-time job, right? We're training 20 hours a week on top of our schoolwork. So you're adding that extra 20 hours of work on top of your grades and your curriculum. And so it was certainly an adjustment, but uh, you know, I was living the dream. I had dreamed of earning that college scholarship for so many years. And here I was living it out and, um, you know, trying to navigate this new world. And, you know, I think the one thing that I point out to people is that even when I went off to Rutgers, my relationship with my parents did not change. We talked every single day, burn up those phone lines, because it was important to me to have that relationship with my parents. And they were very invested in me as well in my career at Rutgers. And so my mom knew everything there was to know about gymnastics. So she was kind of the Gary in this group, right? So she was the one that knew (laughs) everything there was to know. Every single skill, a play-by-play, she wanted to know it all. So every day we had conversations. I'm working on this new skill, this combination. And there was a lot of excitement and that was an excitement for her. And then, you know, my father, truth be told, you know, he knew a good bit about gymnastics, but he was one of those that just showed up and cheered really <laughs> loud. And, uh, you know, for him, it was always a struggle. I go back and watch these old VHS tapes of me competing and you just hear him whistling and screaming, yeah, let's go, Lauren. And he'll commentate. But the best part about it is he'll be like, okay, Lauren, Lauren's about to go on the balance beam and get on the bars. <laughs> like, <laughs> you never can get it straight. And I don't understand. And I'm like, dad, what are you doing? You know, his commentary is quite comical when I look back at it. But nevertheless, uh, you know, we still had that close relationship. And so, you know, it really helped to have that support, especially when you transition from high school to college. And it, it's just uh, it's just a, it, it's it, it's definitely a shock to the system. And so I felt like I was still very rooted back at home with my family and my parents. And so as we talk about getting into that second semester at Rutgers Uh, We were about to approach midterms. You know, I'd been studying for those exams. And this particular night on March 23rd of uh, March 23rd of 2003, called my parents like I always did, picked up the phone. Uh, My mom was excited to hear about this new combination I was working on on bars. And then I talked to my dad briefly and he had just celebrated his 52nd birthday. And I remember him telling me that he was so proud of me and to keep working hard and that was the end of our conversation. You know, it was like most, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes. We hung up the phone, said our goodbyes, said our I love yous. 
And I remember just setting my alarm clock that night thinking nothing of anything. Life is great. Life is wonderful. I'm going to go in and crush these midterm exams, hopefully, and that'll be it. And so I set my alarm clock, drifted off to sleep, and then woke up to the phone ringing. And of course, looking outside, I realized it was dark out. So that, of course, alarmed me a little bit and then looked at the clock and it was just after 3 a.m. And as I went to go grab the phone on the receiver that was sitting on my desk, I look at the caller ID and it said home. And that's when I knew something had to be wrong because it's the middle of the night. Why are mom and dad calling me? And so when I answered the phone with hesitation, my father on the other end said, Lauren, I need to talk to your brother. Well, my brother at the time was stationed in Norfolk, Virginia, in the Navy. He was a parachute rigger there. And, uh, you know, I could tell that my dad was in, in distress. And I didn't know if something was wrong with dad. I didn't know something was wrong with mom, if it was my brother. And I was just like, okay. I said, dad, what's wrong? And he said, Lauren, I just need to talk to your brother. So he wasn't giving me any information. And so I, I found my brother's phone number, recited it back to him. My dad said, I'll call you back as soon as I talk to your brother. And I hung up the phone and then no more than 30 seconds goes by. And I get a call back from my dad and he was on the other end. And he said, Lauren, your mom died. And I was just very caught off guard by it because, you know, again, I just talked to my mom. My mom's 45 years old. It's the middle of the night. And all of a sudden I'm thinking like, what do you mean mom died? You know, this makes no sense to me. and. You know, I I, I kind of begged him to explain, give me an explanation. And in many ways, I think I was trying to almost like wake myself up, you know, like, wake up, wake up. Like, this has got to be a nightmare. It's got to be a nightmare. He said, Lauren, I can't explain it now. I need you to get on the next plane you can, and I'll be at the airport to pick you up in Roanoke. And so, of course, I just was shocked. I was stunned. And then I go into like, you know, panic mode. Okay, I got to get stuff together. What am I going to do? But as I'm kind of taking in this information I had just learned, my roommate even had woken up from her deep sleep, comes running over as she sees me slunk over in the floor, like crying and starts shaking me and says, Lauren, Lauren, wake up. You're having a nightmare. So she thought I was in fact having a nightmare. And unfortunately it was a nightmare, but it was reality. And so as you can imagine being an 18 year old, suddenly just trying to piece together this news that I had received, and then ultimately just wanting to do nothing more than to get home and be with my father. That's all I wanted in that time, in that moment, is just to be home and to to, to, to get home to my dad. So you got on the plane and you landed in uh, Roanoke, but yet I guess the unexpected was to continue. What happened next when you got to uh, Roanoke? So when my plane touched down and I run outside, I'm expecting my dad to be there and I'm looking everywhere and I don't see him. And so I stand out there for a few minutes. And the next thing, you know, I see a Jeep Cherokee pull up and out jumps my uncle and my cousin, Justin. And of course, I'm very confused at this point because I'm thinking, all right, you know, my dad was supposed to be here, but then my brain just starts jogging all these things. He's at the hospital. He's probably still on his way. They didn't want me to sit here and have to wait forever. So uh, because my uncle and my cousin both lived in Roanoke, so it was much closer to the airport. My father had over an hour drive. So I'm kind of rationalizing all these thoughts in my mind and just this you know, matter of seconds. And then they get in the car and we start driving. And at this point, it was just tears. Nobody really said anything. 
And then finally, as we start driving, I said to my uncle, Mike, I said, uncle Mike, I said, I just want to see my dad. Where's my dad. And then he pulled the car off the side of the road as you take the exit ramp back onto the interstate. And I just remember feeling that gravel underneath the car crunching as he put it in a park and he turned around and he looked at me and he said, Lauren, I'm sorry, but your dad's passed away too. It's hard to know to begin to sort of know how to obviously process or um, because at this point you didn't know what had happened. You you knew they'd passed, but you didn't know why, how. It almost felt like as bad as that was, it felt like it got worse. You know, in a sense, how could it be worse than two parents passing? Well, I don't know. Listening to your story a bit, it feels like it did. I mean, how could it have gotten worse? But yet, as you were to learn how it happened, which it was, um, um, you know, I don't know how you process anything what you went through. But it, is that fair? Like in some ways, it got worse than what you learned. Yeah, and I think the the stages of grief uh, really have an interesting way of taking us in. And I think for me, you know, it was that initial shock. But then to your point, you know, now you've got to pick all these pieces up. You have to lay both your parents to rest who just passed away five hours apart from each other. You have zero answers as to what happened. And you're just sitting here wondering, like, okay, what next? Like, how am I going to do this? I'm 18 years old. I don't have a penny to my name. Like, I've got nothing. Like, what am I going to do? And I think it's all these questions and it's the shock and it's this pain and it's this grief and in many ways, anger. But, you know, those emotions don't really hit you all at once, right? It starts out with just like almost that that breathlessness. Did I just hear this right? Is this possible? Like what just happened? And then as time goes on, you know, days, weeks, months, and even years, you start to transcend into that, you know, that grief stage and then that anger the why, 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 how did this happen? And then to your point, Warwick, is that I think the the hardest part is, is that there were so many questions as to how this could happen to the two of my parents so suddenly with literally not much information to go off of. And so with this process, you know, they have to do toxicology reports and they have to do the death certificates and I'll figure all this out. Well, what's crazy about it is the um, coroner's office has 90 days to complete this process. So we as a family sit here for 90 days just wondering, okay, what was it? What happened? But Behind closed doors, conversations were already being had with my Uncle Mike and my Auntie Linda, my mom's sister. Um, That was my Uncle Mike's married to my Auntie Linda. And those conversations were already being had about what possibly could have happened, what they found at the house, what were some clues, what were some things that were outstanding. And uh, those conversations were happening, but they weren't really happening around me. And I think part of that was kind of protecting me. Part of that was my sort of young, naive self, not wanting to associate with maybe what could potentially be the truth surrounding what happened to them. And so really my family, especially my aunt and uncle, who really like were picking up the pieces in this moment, sort of just kind of navigated things on their own and sort of kind of went behind the scenes, took care of what they needed to, and then ultimately just loved me and my brother through it. 
and helped us get through sort of each day, one day at a time. And so really where you talk about things getting worse, as you unpack what ultimately happened to my parents, after 90 days, those toxicology reports would reveal that both of my parents died of fentanyl overdoses. So both my parents had been going to a pain management doctor here in Roanoke, Virginia. They had been dealing with a lot of chronic pain. My mom had degenerative disc disease, which required multiple surgeries over the course of a few years. My father had chronic back pain. My father also had served in the military and had struggled with some uh, depressions and PTSD. And you also asked about there being signs. You know, my father also struggled with alcohol much of his life. But that was something that very much as children seemed to be under control. And so there was really no correlation in my mind that my parents could have a drug problem, that they could be experiencing substance misuse with the prescription drugs that they were taking. Because prescription drugs, they're given to you. You take them. They're supposed to help you. They were what got my parents out of bed in the morning. They were what helped them to survive in my mind. So those toxicology reports came back right at the 90-day mark, and believe it or not, my aunt, as soon as we got the call from the coroner's office that they were ready, we went straight over to the coroner's office, pulled up the car. My aunt asked me if I wanted to go in with her. I said no, sat in the car. It was blazing hot that day. I remember the air conditioning was just blowing. She goes out. She comes back. She goes into the office, comes back out with a manila envelope looks at me and hands it to me and says, do you want to open it and read it? And I said, no. And so I threw it in the floorboard and that was it. Wanted nothing to do what was written on those pieces of paper because I felt like if I read those pieces of paper, if I saw what ultimately killed my parents, took my parents' life, then that would have to be the truth of what happened to my parents. And I would have to acknowledge the truth and I would have to live my life knowing that they died of overdoses instead of this sugar-coated story that I had manifested and created in my life, in, in my mind, and was telling people all along. And my entire story would now be corrupt if I saw this piece of paper that stated that my parents died of fentanyl overdoses. When did you open that manila envelope, or when did your aunt and uncle tell you what happened? So 10 years was actually when I opened up the manila envelope, which when you think about it, how one person can go 10 years and just ignore something for so long, right? I mean, 10 years. And again, I would tell this sugar-coated story to people because, um, you know, I went right back to Rutgers within 10 days. I'm back at Rutgers. People want to know what happened. They try to do it in a loving way. Um, they're curious. And so when it would get brought up, I would say, well, mom died of respiratory failure. Dad died of a heart attack because that sounded a lot better to me than mom died of a fentanyl overdose and dad died of a fentanyl overdose. And I was able to literally in my mind with respiratory failure, that just sounded so much better than overdose or addiction. And then with my father, the heart attack part, well, he had heart issues and high cholesterol and this and that. And so I was like, well, heart attack because he must have been heartbroken because of losing my mom. And well, his heart stopped and that was all justified in my mind, even though he too ingested a lethal amount of fentanyl just hours after my mom did. 
And so I was, I would literally was justifying this in my mind so much so that I started to believe it. I literally walked through life for several years, concocting this story and it, I pretty much spoke it into existence. You know, I knew in my heart that neither one of my parents intentionally took their lives that day. Both overdoses were ruled accidental. But the bottom line is, you know, there's no way for us to know what led them into those moments. What led them to say, I'm going to take this fentanyl? Because my mom was prescribed fentanyl, but it was, you know, it's in a pain patch and it's intended to be worn um, a 72 hour uh, time release. Eventually she couldn't, uh, that wasn't enough. So the doctor dropped that from 72 hours to every 48 hours. She was swapping out the pain patch. But as a pain patch is released into your bloodstream and your system, that's not technically lethal. But what ends up happening is my parents put those pain patches in the freezer and they began to suck on the pain patches. And ultimately, that gives you just the immediate high that you unfortunately don't know how much you're actually getting. And both of my parents had obviously gotten so deep down this road of addiction that they felt this might be the only way that they can actually feel better or stave off some of that addiction pain that they were feeling. You mentioned a book on the horizon. There's been some discoveries that have happened because even almost 20 years after my parents passed away, there were still so many black holes, so many things that we did not know as a family, so many things that we did not understand that um, have been uncovered in such a beautiful way that I, 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 I could just tell you that it's amazing this journey and process where I'm at now, 20 years after they passed away to where I was even just five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, it, it's truly been a beautiful journey and as sad and tragic as it has been, it has also been so enlightening. And many of those questions that we had there have been answers that have followed even 20 years later. That makes me think of on the YouTube version of this show. Um, I always begin in talking about crucible experiences, traumas, tragedies, setbacks, failures. I always begin by saying those things didn't happen to you. They happened for you. They don't define you. They refine you. And it sounds like what you're describing is that experience. I mean, is that fair that that was kind of your experience as you researched, as you understood with the journalist's skill of knowing how to research? Did that feel like it was doing that to you, that it, it was refining you in some way, that that these things, painful as they were, didn't happen to you? You, you were able to pivot a bit and see that they happened for you to understand and then help others. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think that's a that that's a that's a great perspective, Gary, because I do think that has been one of the biggest lessons I've learned through my personal journey, but as I've transcended into sports broadcasting, right? Because my job as a sports broadcaster is to ask questions and tell stories. So when I ask those questions, I'm literally digging under the surface to learn more about an individual and learn more about their history, where they came from, and ultimately what experiences they've undergone that have ultimately shaped who they are today. And I think that when you talk about refining things, 
we go through things in life. And in those moments, we wonder why me, how is this possible? How could this happen to, you know, my two best friends, the two people that are loved by so many, we're a church going family. We are, you know, so close and so tight and everyone loves my parents and, and they were loved by so many. And, you know, they loved with their whole hearts. And how could such a terrible thing happen to such great people, right? Those questions come up a lot because we all experience hardships. We all experience adversity. We all experience challenges. And it's easy to get caught in that continuum of the why me. But now looking back as a reflect on this journey, I realize that that refinement has really happened and it's taken time. It's been a long journey and a long process. But as I'm here today, I realize now that it has been revealed to me that as I stand here, that my story has meaning and it has purpose. And that I'm so thankful that I've been able to, 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 to see that through this evolution and this, this process going from being this 18-year-old, completely clueless, how am I going to survive this? to now 20 years later, having this platform to be able to share other people's stories, because I see stories are what unite us. It's what brings us together. And it ultimately shapes us into who we are and gives us almost this credibility to be able to go to someone else and say, you know, I went through this thing and I know you're going through something similar. I want to help you get through this. And this is how, because I think that's where inspiration, encouragement, and hope all come from. And I think it's passed along from one person to the next, to the next, to the next. Prescription drugs is is, is a horrendous thing. And they didn't take it by choice. They took it because they're in, in terrible pain. But how did you get through that to the point that you're at now? It seems almost probably hard for a lot of people to believe how in the world could Lauren come back from that and not let that define and destroy her life? Yeah. You know, uh, that's been something I've also been trying to uncover over the years. and I And I will tell you this. As I've tried to understand that a little bit more, because one question I do get as I go on the public speaking circuit is that very same question. How did you do it? How did you get through it? How did you not turn to substance yourself to cope with those things? You know, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, well, I'd love to have a, a straightforward answer on this. And, and I don't think there's any one right or wrong answer to it. And really maybe that... Um, you know, manuscript that says this is exactly piece by piece how I did it. But I will say that I have uncovered a lot of those uh, questions with my therapist. Um, you know, I, I've seen a therapist, uh, you know, once my parents passed away, when I'd gone back to school, you know, they had provided me with, a, you know, a, a therapist to kind of navigate some of these, you know, tumultuous times. And then, you know, I kind of would pull back from it and I'm good. And then I'd kind of slip back into, okay, you know, maybe I need to start going to see somebody. But really, I would say in these last several years, prior to the pandemic, I started meeting with somebody in Birmingham. And because I'm where I'm at now, I'm truly at a point where it's not so much about healing and it is very much about healing, but it's more about understanding the how and the why. And I'm so curious, especially as a reporter, because I go into reporter mode and I start asking these <laughs> questions. And I now almost feel, uh, you know, invigorated and exonerated in many ways, right? I think about like the shackles of shame have finally just kind of ripped off of me 
But now I want to understand why. And I don't think I had the maturity nor the experience nor the healing to be able to ask those same questions maybe 10 years Mm. ago because I didn't really want to know why. But now I'm at that point where I'm like, okay, how did I do this and why did I do this? And it's so cool to kind of walk through that process and understand why I'm where I'm at. And I think a lot of it became the compartmentalization that I was able to create for myself, this window of tolerance. And I think some of it probably stems from gymnastics, the competitive spirit, the competitive nature, the, you know, focus mentality. Okay. Focus, focus, focus. So I was able to just like focus in on things and almost eliminate those outside distractions, right? those outside voices, the outside noise. And so it was almost like rinse and repeat. Okay, I'm going through this thing. Focus, focus. All right, get through it. Okay, I overcame that challenge. All right, next. And so a lot of it was the compartmentalization and being able to do that. You know, but when I think about that, you know, I'm always curious to know what allows us to have that innate ability to create that window of tolerance for ourselves. And I think that's something I've been trying to uncover and to recognize because let's be real, life is hard. And, you know, I I certainly don't place myself in any sort of category as to having superhuman powers to be able to just overcome this thing. But I do think that in many ways that my parents, were they perfect? No, but I do feel like they equipped me with certain things that helped me later in life to navigate some of these challenges. And then I also think the sport of gymnastics paired with that allowed me to do so. And then I just think that sort of determination and that work ethic to say, okay, like I'm going to push past this. Right. And then, you know, ultimately I have to say I dove into my faith. And I think that's where a lot of this has, has really grown exponentially because instead of sort of leaning out in the early phases of when all of this happened, you know, I really leaned out and kind of leaned back and said, Oh, I got this. I don't need your help. I'm good. Then to realize that, wait, why don't I lean in and utilize these resources, lean into my faith, lean into God, lean into the people around me and say, Hey, I'm going to accept your help. You're here for me. I've got to stand on my own two feet and take that first step forward but let's hold hands and let's walk through this together. I'm glad you brought up your faith because 20 minutes ago in this conversation, this came to me as you were talking, the difficulty of facing the truth that you had. And I think of John 8, 31 and, and uh, 32, the truth will set you free. Yep. I mean, that's that's exactly what we're talking about here in the story of Lauren Sisler. The, the truth has set you free and not just, although for your own freedom and your own well-being, but the freedom to then transfer freedom, transfer healing to others. And that is um, a beautiful thing. I mean, beauty from ashes, right? To you know, go back to the Bible in that case. Um, that's the summary of your story, I think. I love that too. And you use the word transfer. Like that's such a good, that's such a good word because it is like taking my experience. And one thing I do encourage people, and I think it's really hard because a lot of times people want to make comparisons. Well, you know, I, you know, I'll go speak at an event and someone say, well, you know, I went through this and certainly not as bad as what you've been through, but I, I stop them right there because your experience is your experience, right? You've gone through your challenges that I can't even begin to know what those 
might feel like to you and vice versa. But ultimately we experience similarities. We experience similar things and trauma is trauma. Tragedy is tragedy. Shame is shame. No matter what led you to that emotion, to that feeling, to whatever that thing that is gripping you, you might've been led down that path in a different way, but ultimately you're experiencing that same emotion. And I love that terminology of transferring that because being able to transfer my life experiences and what I've, I've experienced to help you maybe walk through your shame, because shame comes in so many different shapes, sizes, uh, experiences, right? And I think that um, whether you've experienced addiction or you know loss because of addiction, um, not everybody knows what that feels like, but you've walked through shame in some sort of way, whether it's lost a job, made a poor choice, wish you could literally hit the rewind button and erase something that you've done in your life. We all walk through the shadows of shame. And I think that's what's really great about this podcast specifically, and, and really just this opportunity to use our stories to empower other people to also walk out of those shadows of shame and undo those shackles and say, look, I don't have to be, I don't have to be shackled to this anymore. I can be free if I can only stand in my truth. And I think that if we can encourage people to stand in their truth and own every piece of their story, they're going to be set free in ways they never even imagined possible. That's so well said, Lauren. I mean, I want to pick up on some strands that you said, because I think there are some important uh, things you've said that can really um, help people. Uh, certainly one of the things that uh, I was blessed by on this podcast, we had a guy, David Charbonnet, that was a Navy SEAL that was, became a paraplegic in a uh, training, uh, parachuting training accident. And I mentioned to him, gosh, what I went through, you know, losing this 150-year-old family business and a $2.25 billion takeover, you know, big news in Australia and lots of nasty editorial cartoons and all the rest. And in a moment of tremendous grace, and he is also a person of faith, he said, you know, Warwick, your worst day is your worst day. Basically, it's not a competition. And that was so generous of me because to me, objectively, what he went through being a plumbing a paraplegic was objectively to me, feels like a lot worse than what I went through. But everybody, pretty much everybody we've had on our podcast has had that same attitude. And we've had paraplegics, yep. quadriplegics, victims that. of abuse, victims of incredible things. And they have this spirit of generosity. But there's another strand that you mentioned that I think is really important. Um, I had some things I had to understand how certainly family members behave the way they did. And as I've understood what made them who they were and, and made that made them like they were and the choices they made or, you know, what happened, it made it somewhat, if not significantly, easier to deal with as I understood what happened and why. And understanding, at least in my case, made it easier to forgive. Like, okay, I get it. They went through trauma. They were this way and that way. And it makes sense now. It doesn't mean, you know, things are necessarily right. But um, so those are important lessons. And I think it can be helpful to all of us is counseling, certainly from our perspective, faith, uh, but just understanding. Understanding helps breed uh, freedom. Does that make sense? Just because that's what I'm hearing in your story is some of the clues that it can help others. Yeah, I love that. The understanding piece, I think, is so 
critical here. And there is that level of healing and you talk about forgiveness, right? Because there was that time where I was very angry, um, angry at God. And also, you know, some level of anger at my parents of, you know, how did this happen? How did it get out of control? How did we not know? Why did you not cry for help? And, you know, I, I hear this time and time again, when people come and share their personal stories with me of just, you know, my mom or dad is going through addiction or, you know, the, uh, they won't get clean. They won't get sober for me, or perhaps they've been incarcerated due to drug use, um, or anything outside or inside that realm. And there is that anger that often occurs. And I do think that understanding allows us to have forgiveness, which I also think is part of that whole equation of setting us free, right? Having a better understanding while, you know, I might not ever understand or know the exact reasons for why the challenges for my parents continued to mount as it pertained to their prescription drug use and then ultimately their financial crisis that just came crumbling down all at one time. There were a lot of things I think that led down that pathway, but in understanding their story, understanding their struggle, I don't love them any less of anything. I feel like I embrace them even more. And I think that really came to me when I hit that 10 year mark, opened up those toxicology reports, decided it was time to start sharing their story publicly. And as I did that, there was specifically a handful of people that even my closest friends in um, school didn't even know how my parents died. My best friend didn't even know how my parents died for several years. But one thing that came of it, which I thought was just so cool, was that even um, my my dad's colleagues at his work. So he used to work at the, the Salem VA Medical Center as a biomedical technician. And there were so many people that just loved my dad, adored my dad, you know, showed up to the funeral. And I might have not known them personally, but they stayed connected through myself and my brother through Facebook and different social media platforms. And when they saw that story 10 years later, saw me opening up and talking about it, I received an overwhelming response. And instead of the fears being validated that people would judge my parents, because that's why I withdrew from it for so long, instead it was, wow, I can't believe that you went through this. I can't believe your parents were going through this. We loved your parents so much. We wish we would have known maybe we could have done something to help them. But your parents were such wonderful people and they did everything they could to fight for you and your brother and to give you and your brother everything they could, even despite all the pain and all the the the, the turmoil they were going through, both physically and financially. And then I now feel I have peace of mind knowing what took their lives that day. So in many ways, I was able to give others that cared and loved for my parents so much some peace through that understanding. And I felt like that was a gift. And even though that gift didn't come for many years, I felt like that was a gift that was bestowed on me. And then ultimately I was able to give that to others who did love and care for my parents so deeply. In football, there's a clock. And in football, 
toward the end of the game, there's the two-minute warning. And, and, and in this conversation, uh, knowing that the two people who aren't me on this call have appointments coming up, uh, we're going to call the two-minute warning right now <laughs> and, um, and uh, begin wrapping up before uh, the clock runs out. But before we do that, there's a couple things um, I want to do uh, with you. One, I, I want you to know I dress for the occasion with you. Um, there's my T-shirt, which says Team Brave, Yay! which I believe... I believe you definitely are that, uh, uh, Lauren. You are oh, a, a, you. A, a, a leading player on on Team Brave for sure. And before we get to the clock running out, I'd be remiss if I didn't give you the chance to talk about your book, which is coming up, the timing of your book. Um, and and if you can sneak it in at some point, the sideline shimmy, you know, if you could just you know talk about how that's helped you. <laughs> how that's helped you heal as well. And then we'll turn it back over to Warwick to ask you the final question. Well, I so appreciate that. Thank you. I am honored to be part of Team Brave. Such an honor. And uh, I'm so glad you dressed up for us because I know you were just on a really, really awesome, amazing <laughs> trip. Right. That uh, is, uh, I I'm waiting to unpack those details uh, when we've got time because I know, ugh, I just can't wait to hear about it. You know, I would just say, as we are winding down in this two minute warning, um, you know, I'm so thankful as we, we talked about a little bit uh, of the book process. And this was actually something that I started uh, at the beginning of last year in 2021 and um, have been working, working on now, uh, you know, for about a year and a half. And it has been quite a process and quite a journey. And for many years, I've had people say, well, you should write a book. You should write a book. And I was just like, write a book. Like, I don't have any idea how to write a book, where to go. What do I do? Like, what do I do with my hands? You know? <laughs> and I just was clueless. And it's amazing how the good Lord works because suddenly people come into your life and then they plant those seeds and they say, well, I've got someone, I know someone that can help out with this. And so it's been a really cool process of meeting the right people and um, working with the right, um, you know, publisher and soon to be publicist, <laughs> wink, wink, <laughs> nudge, nudge. So putting the right people in place to help in this process uh, and um, super excited about it just because so much has been uncovered. And while, you know, we never went into it with the intention of it being an investigative piece, it has definitely uncovered so many things and so many details, but more than anything, so many connections and relationships. And there's so much healing that has come from it. And I am so excited to gift that to other people. The perspective that I've received in this process, I think is truly a gift. And I want to be able to gift that to other people. I want to transfer that to other people, as you said, Gary, through this book. And so I'm really excited about it. And uh, we don't have a specific launch date this moment, but I think we're eyeballing the fall um, as I'm knee deep in football season, because what, what better time is there, right? right. And you mentioned, um, you know, as we've been batting titles back and forth and, Figuring out, you know, what what is going to be the scope of this book, and you know, what do we want really people when they pick pick that up to see? You mentioned the sideline shimmy, and yep. with some encouragement from you <laughs> and our good friend Darren um, and others that have been part of this process, uh, the sideline shimmy has taken on a form of its own. And most people will be like, "What in the world is a sideline shimmy?" Well, believe it or not, the sideline shimmy was. Uh, born in 2019, in fact. So as I was working through my career at ESPN, I noticed quite often that 
my nerves were still gripping me at times. And I'm like, okay, I know the content. I know exactly what I'm supposed to say. I know the questions. I know exactly what I'm talking about. And yet my body still has this way of like screaming at me. Like you're standing on a football field in front of 2 million people about to go live. Okay. I guess it's okay to be nervous, right? Well, how do you combat those nerves? And that's something that I really struggled with because I'm thinking like, I'm confident, I'm here, I've earned this opportunity, and yet my body is still throwing me into a a chaos. And so my central nervous system was uh, taking over. And with that being said, um, as the former DJ, DJ Sizzla, uh, (laughs) music is in my veins. I love to dance. I love to just be free. Um, I can't tell you that I'm a good dancer, but what I started doing was dancing on the sidelines because really it helped me to take that nervous, anxious, excited energy that was paired with adrenaline that had me going a million miles an hour, helped me to slow down and just soak it all in. And with the dancing, it really just kind of helped me to use that to really just calm the nerves and really in many ways, bring me back to the moment. And so dancing became my thing. And it was something that what I realized, never assume the cameras aren't rolling because (laughs) this whole dancing thing was assumed that it was before the game kicked off, cameras weren't rolling, nobody's really watching. Oh, by the way, they're always (laughs) watching. And so these silly dances made made their way to my inbox or, you know, my, uh, my cell phone, I get blown up with text messages. Hey, you know, we caught this on camera and I'm like, Oh, okay. So then of course I ended up posting these silly things on social media. And, um, I think the coolest part about it is it has turned into something more than I ever imagined it would with the sideline shimmy. But ultimately I've found so many people finding joy in the sideline shimmy and realizing that everyone can find joy and purpose And whatever your sideline shimmy is might look different than mine, but everyone has a sideline shimmy. And so unlocking whatever that sideline shimmy is that gives you joy, that helps you to uncover and unnerve yourself and to go through life being free and joyous and happy, no matter who's watching, I think is uh, an amazing thing. And it's a gift. And so Hopefully, uh, through this book and through this process, I can help other people find find their sideline shimmy too. Wow, that's wonderful! That's uh, yeah, I've seen that on uh, YouTube, and it's it's a lot of fun. So yeah, it's just kind of <laughs> little, little fun, light belief as you're doing your thing as a sports journalist. So um, it's funny we've spoken a lot about your story, your parents' story, and. Not as much about you being a sports journalist, which most people would know you. It's like uh, Lauren Sisler, she's on the sidelines at ACC Network and ESPN and, you know, uh, making these insightful comments. So from what I understand, that's a whole nother discussion, which we don't have too much time to get into. But, you know, starting out in a small station in Roanoke and then Virginia and Alabama and, you know, ESPN, and which is incredible. And you've been very successful. So... Just talk about your vision. I have a feeling you view what you do as a sports journalist as more than a job that there's, I'm pretty sure there's a mission behind it. And I think you've hinted at what that mission is to you. And more broadly than just that mission, talk about the uh, the mission you have in your speaking and your book and 
I love some of the things you say about finding meaning and purpose and falling in love with your story. Um, you know, you have a choice. There's clearly a very strong mission you have, and being a sports journalist is part of that. So just just talk about those uh, about those things. Your you know your mission as a sports journalist, your mission more generally about you know the power of telling a story and. You know, the one thing that I have found myself um, doing, and really it has sprouted up in recent years, when I step foot on that football field and that national anthem plays, because that's always the time where everybody pauses what they're doing, warm-ups are over, guys have gone back in the locker room, and now everyone stands. And that is the time where I stand in my thoughts, in that moment. And I look up to the sky and I look to God and I look to my parents and I say, give me this opportunity to go out here. Give me the right words to say, may a story, may an event, may something that happens tonight influence and impact the lives of other, even if just one life in a positive way. And so that's always my hope and my goal when I step foot out on that football field is to give someone some encouragement, some inspiration, uh, a story of hope, something that they may be able to take through their lives. Then, of course, I thank the good Lord above and my mom and dad, and I have that conversation with them. And it's just a beautiful moment to be able to spend as my nerves and that excitement and, you know, all the adrenaline and the pageantry that's about to happen around us as those players get ready to run out of that tunnel. And so it really is a special moment. And so that's really become a vision and a mission for me when I step foot on that football field. And I've discovered it's more than the wins and the losses. It's more than just a game, right? It's so much more than that. And that's where I feel so thankful for this gift of being able to use my voice to share stories that have so much meaning, so much purpose. And that's where the tagline, as you mentioned, fall in love with your story has really the root of that has come from, because I want to encourage all to fall in love with their story, undo those shackles of shame, because for so many years, I harbored this shame and realized that I'm not going to allow this shame to define me just like it didn't define my parents. My parents aren't defined by how they died, but by how they lived their lives. And now I want to stand in that truth and carry that same ideology with me and recognizing, okay, you know what? I'm not going to be defined by shame anymore. And I'm going to use this as an opportunity to help other people and to inspire and encourage other people. So ultimately, when I undid the shackles of shame and fell in love with my story, I wanted to give that to other people, transfer that to other people, as Gary said, and help them to also fall in love with their story. And so that really has become my goal and mission um, in the sports world as a sports broadcaster and beyond that when I step foot on stage and share my personal and professional journey and words of encouragement and ultimately give people a lens of hope and inspiration. I have been in the communications business long enough to know when the final word on a subject has been spoken. Uh, and Lauren Sisler has just spoken it. If this microphone wasn't so expensive, I would drop it. Mic drop. Yeah, it's a mic drop moment. <laughs> I don't want to have to buy a new one. But um, so, uh, listener, until we're together next time, um, please remember that we do understand that crucible experiences are painful. We know 
um, Lauren and Warwick talked about the pain that they ha have gone through in their own crucible experiences. But you also heard there's a way out of that pain. There's a way beyond that pain. Um, embracing your story, learning to love your story. I love that concept. Learn to love your story and learn the lessons as well of your crucible. Because when you do learn the lessons of them and apply them and move forward, uh, the, your crucible experience is not the end of your story. It was not the end of Lauren Sisler's story. It can be the beginning of a new story, as it was for Lauren, that will lead you to a, a final destination that's the most rewarding of all, and that is a life of significance. If you enjoyed this episode, learned something from it, we invite you to engage more deeply with those of us at Beyond the Crucible. Visit our website, beyondthecrucible.com, to explore a plethora of offerings to help you transform what's been broken into breakthrough. A great place to start, our free online assessment, which will help you pinpoint where you are on your journey beyond your crucible and to chart a course forward. See you next week.